Hello and welcome to the good, the bad, the ugly, the aviation maintenance industry. I am your host, Brian Wheels, and you're listening to episode eight, number two of the listener questions answered, coming up. All right, and welcome everyone to episode eight of the good, the bad, the ugly, the aviation maintenance industry. This is number two of our listener questions answered, so let's dive right in. Our first question comes from Brittany in New York. She asks, does Boeing hire A&Ps? I work for an Amaro back shop. I'm a woman and do not have an A&P. Brittany, uh, that's a very good question. First of all, you being a woman and that being a determining factor whether you get a job, don't have a job, work in aviation, don't work in aviation has nothing to do with it. So I can put a kibosh to that right there. Just because you're a woman doesn't mean that you can't work at Boeing, doesn't mean you can't work anywhere else, all right? It comes down to your skill set, your experience, your knowledge, your ability to do the job, and that's, that is it. If you've got all that covered, you've got nothing to worry about. Um, so Boeing, at least when I worked there, they hire both A&Ps and folks without a license. Generally, Boeing will put folks without a license. You'll, you'll find them, uh, the majority of people in the workforce without a license. Uh, they're in the manufacturing. And the majority of the workforce at Boeing don't have an A&P. And really, you're only going to find a handful of A&Ps throughout the manufacturing plants. Instead, the A&Ps are on the flight line in the AOG department, or they're scattered throughout the flight testing departments on the line. So yeah, uh, just because you don't have an A&P doesn't mean that you can't work at Boeing. Being a woman, in my humble opinion, doesn't, doesn't make a difference. It's your ability to do the job. And it comes down to how well you'd perform at that job. But that's a great question. Very good. The second question comes from Mark in California. And he asks, have you ever recovered crashed aircraft and what's involved with it? My second question is, have you taken planes out of storage and made them fly again? Uh, Mark, that's, those are really, really good questions. So besides the normal non-routine AOG maintenance trips, I have had several big maintenance assignments throughout the years, both as aircraft recoveries after an aircraft incident and in performing aircraft RTS maintenance on aircraft in the desert. I've been lucky or unlucky, however you want to look at it, to have been involved in several aircraft incidents, either directly as a mechanic or indirectly as a technical advisor. And those were mainly gear up or gear collapse incidents. And no, fortunately, I have not been involved with any fatal aircraft incidents in 14 years. I have not uh, worked any crashes like that. So thank goodness. But I enjoy these type of assignments because of the technical aspects, the harsh time constraints, because I look at it as a challenge. And overall, it's, it's very satisfying to complete those type of jobs. And I get a real kick out of it. Every time except for two, though, we've used airbags to lift the aircraft. The other two times we used a crane. And we ended up just needing to uh, pin the gear because it fell right down after you're able to raise the aircraft. And it locked right into place without any damage to the gear or to the gearbox structure. 
Other times, we end up replacing parts and making repairs to the aircraft to a point where it could be flown to a hangar. So, gear up, gear collapse incidents, uh, generally what I've been on as far as crashed aircraft. Those are those can be very challenging jobs, and the company whose aircraft that belongs to, they'll determine whether they want to send out, let's say it's a Boeing aircraft, the Boeing AOG team, or if they're going to send out their own mechanics to recover the aircraft. Sometimes they do both. Airbus has its own people, its GO team, that deals with Airbus aircraft. And uh, it is it is pretty cool. I'll give you that. It's, it is pretty neat doing it. But you don't really focus on replacing much when the aircraft is off the side of the runway. Because the focus at that point is to get the aircraft off the runway. So you do the most minimal you can to recover the plane, get it back on its wheels, and get it to a hangar somewhere off of the active run. Well, not active. Somewhere off the runway. If you're lucky enough to raise the aircraft and have the gear just fall and lock on you, that's a great thing. You're lucky. You inspect it and lower the airbags to a point where the aircraft is about 50% weight on wheels and then lower incrementally from there until the full weight of the aircraft is on the affected gear or gears. And then you let it settle and do another inspection, another walk around. And once everyone is in agreement that the aircraft can support its own weight, then you know you're good to tow it off the runway. And I'm going to stop right there for a second. Everybody on the AOG team needs to be in full agreement with each other on both the initial plan of attack, on recovering the aircraft, and the maintenance thereafter. Because what happens is, if you have people who bicker with each other and cannot agree and align on what the goal is, then you just waste time. So it's very important that you're sending out a person responsible for the team that can bring the group together and as a team decide what's the best choice for repair. So, so then again, if it's good, you tow it off the runway. If it's bad and can't be pinned safely, then you have two choices. Replace the gear assembly on the spot and if you already have it on hand. Or the easiest way is lift it with bags or a crane and then place the wing or the nose on a special flatbed and get it out of that area off the runway where you can continue work. Once that is done, the determination is made by the owner of the aircraft and the insurance company to see if it is repairable. Then they bring maintenance in and get their opinions. This has happened almost every time where maintenance is either determined the aircraft is repairable or it's not, and then the company or the owner says, well, let me talk to the insurance company first. Many times the insurance company will send out a representative to inspect the aircraft. They will then touch base with the owner of the aircraft. They will determine amongst each other whether the aircraft is going to be fixed. And then they go to maintenance and say, hey, uh, yeah, you know when you said that plane was not going to be uh, uh, salvageable and uh, we're just going to end up cutting it up. You were right. It's like, why didn't you just agree with us the first time but it, it does happen the the insurance company and the owner of the aircraft they they talk to each other first and then they bring maintenance in yeah it's it gets kind of weird but i guess we're just a bunch of idiots so <laughs> what do we know if it needs fixing you replace the parts that are damaged 
things like tires, brake assemblies, side struts, walking beams, the drag braces, but sometimes the trimmings break, then the pintle pins or the entire bogey is screwed, then you say f*** it and install a new gear instead. And, and again, we're talking about just the incidents that I've been a part of, which were gear collapses or gear up landings. So, yeah. <laughs> So again, if, if it needs fixing, you replace the parts that are damaged. If it comes, gets to the point to where you know your bogey is screwed up, the pintle pins are gone, the trinions are broken, then you know just put in a throw in a new gear instead. And of course, by that time you've already inspected the gearbox structure for damage, so you've already determined that you can get a new gear installed in that aircraft. Now, if you have structural damage, then you're bringing out an entire different team of people to repair that. Many times you end up replacing engines as well, and pylons, and that depends on whether the mains collapsed, the type of terrain, obstructions that were hit, and so forth. Low-slung engines, such as 3.7, larger Embraer's, A319's, A320's, they will have some sort of engine cowling damage. And even large aircraft, you can have the nose gear collapse, and since they're so long and the gear is so far back, you can have damage to the engines. Not always the case, but just go into it expecting damage to be to the engines. And you know, even before you leave base to head to wherever the aircraft is, you're going to have a plethora of pictures, you're going to have videos. There's going to be some representative already there to send you back information. So you have a pretty good idea based on pictures or video or whatnot of what you're going to have to order, what you're going to have to bring to repair the aircraft. Now RTS, or Return to Service Maintenance, is returning a stored, parked, or preserved, or unpreserved aircraft to an operational state of airworthiness so you can get it ferried back to wherever the customer wants it. The type and length of maintenance involved differs depending on how the aircraft has been parked, the environment, or the conditions it's been parked in, and whether it's had any preservation or, or preventive maintenance done to it, all outlined in the ARD and chapter 10 of the AMM. I really enjoy RTS maintenance, especially on older analog aircraft, because it can involve some hefty troubleshooting skills, which is right up my alley. Especially aircraft that have been stored for any great length of time. Also, extremely rewarding. I'm a guy that enjoys a good challenge, and both of these can be challenging. So, yeah, great. Very good. Very good question. Awesome. The third question comes from Leon in Tennessee. Leon asks, what is the biggest challenge you faced as an aircraft mechanic, both on fixing airplanes and with people? I am a new A&P mechanic and am in my first year of A&P school, and the instructors here don't seem to really care. Well, Leon, thank you for the question, and it's a, it's a real shame that you, you feel that your instructors aren't doing their jobs. Um, I talked about in an earlier podcast my experience in A&P school and what I feel A&P schools nowadays are really being lax on. I think it's it holds very true that now they just want to get as many bodies through the door, write them a check, teach them to the bare minimums set by the FAA, and then push them out the door unprepared for the reality of the industry and then get the new batch of bodies in. It's imperative that you have good instructors. If you don't have a passionate 
instructor willing to go the extra mile to ensure that each of his or her students understand what they're being taught, then you've failed that student. And you haven't helped them in the slightest to be prepared for the aviation maintenance industry. So yeah, that's a shame, Leon. And you know, if I was you, if it was me, uh, I would go talk to the director of the school. But that's, that's just me. And that might not always work out for everybody. And it might not work out regardless of who you are for anybody. But uh, I would at least have a composed discussion with the director of your A&P school and say, look, I paid you, you know, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars to come here and your instructor, whoever it might be, you know, is essentially a piece of shit and does not care about what they're doing. Don't say piece of shit to your the director of your A&P school, though. The biggest fix-a-plane challenge, from what I can recall off the top of my head, was three A300 aircraft that I was sent to RTS years ago in Arizona. We had a customer who wanted all these aircraft in three months with a crew of 15 people. This That was a challenging, challenging job. Three months for three planes is one plane a month with 15 people the youngest plane had been sitting there I think it was like three years and the oldest plane had been sitting for five years and there was no preventive maintenance done on these aircraft and first of all I had never ever worked on an A300 and these were the only ones in 14 years that I have ever worked on fortunately several mechanics in our group had really good experience with the aircraft so we were we were saved on that we had to contact uh, Airbus directly and purchase all the tech pubs beforehand, which was, I think it was like ten grand to do so. Now, it sounds expensive, but believe me, it, it's far less of a headache than you think. And it's the right way to do it, in my opinion. If you don't have all the up-to-date technical publications on hand, the feds are going to give you a fit. You need to have everything as current as you can and applicable to what you're going to do to maintain that aircraft because you have to prove to the feds that you followed the technical publications and you followed uh, all the ADs were researched all that stuff before uh, they'll issue a ferry permit it just makes the ferry permit process much easier so the third thing was manpower again 15 guys and three large aircraft was a real ball kicker that's five guys a plane and there was no way that was going to happen in three months. It just wasn't. I mean, you could have the best mechanics in the world. And three aircraft rts in three months, five guys on a plane, you're not going to do it. This is not going to happen. So I tried to convince the customer to give us five months. But they said no. They'd give us four months instead. So I'm like, okay. Well, hey, thanks for giving us an extra month. So this was great, but still did not help with the manpower issue. And we ended up having to hire 15 contractors from an aviation contract firm. And of course, hiring folks to do the bore scoping and separate inspections that were required. And the fourth thing was parts. But we were really fortunate to have several more A300s around us and a good parts vendor we found in New Mexico and Florida. So we, we did uh, luck out there. 
But yeah, working long hours and hard work did pay off in the end. Turns out that two of the aircraft ended up being ferried. Um, one of them had such bad corrosion that it was it was not even worth it for the customer. So we ended up doing two planes delivered in three months, and it, it worked out. It worked out really well. The third question comes from Amy. Amy says, I was flying out of the airport, and before they moved us back from the gate, the plane broke. They said it was something with the engine. It delayed my flight for an hour. I was stuck on the plane with all the other angry people. After they fixed whatever it was, the mechanic came on the plane and sat in an empty first-class seat and started doing paperwork, which took like 20 minutes. Why did it take so long, and what could have been wrong? Great podcast, by the way. Thank you, Amy. My husband listens to another podcast called Canceling Maintenance or something like that. He was a mechanic in the Navy. That's awesome, Amy. Tell your husband we appreciate his service. Um, very much so. So, you're, first of all, you're pissed about the plane being broken and asking what could have been wrong with the engine. So, I don't know what aircraft you were on. I don't know what was going on with the engine. I can't tell you because I wasn't there. But the fact that it only took an hour means that it was only an hour's worth of repair and it likely was not that serious, or at least serious enough to have canceled the flight, and you get booted off the plane. Now, I empathize with you for having to sit on the plane for an hour. I know that it's disruptive to your plans, and you don't want to be stuck on an aircraft, but as far as answering what could have been wrong, again, I, I don't know the, the type of aircraft you were on. I wasn't there to witness what was going on with the engine, so I, I can't tell you. It could have been a lot of things. But it only took an hour to repair, so it must not have been that bad. Now, the mechanic boarding the aircraft and sitting in an empty first-class seat to do paperwork. You know, I've sat in the first-class seats too, but the aircraft was empty. There was no passengers on it, maybe only crew, and the crew didn't care. Now, to just plop yourself down in first-class in front of other passengers is probably not the best idea. So I wouldn't recommend to do that while there's passengers on the aircraft. Now, as far as paperwork taking 20 minutes, that's actually really good. That means they didn't have to replace a whole lot and fill out a bunch of parts tags and the part numbers, the serial numbers, the corrective action statement, signing the logbook. 20 minutes is not a big deal. It really isn't. But let me caution you. I've been yelled at by passengers. I've had comments made to me by, you know, passengers that were pissed off. And it's never really, I would never advise pissing off a mechanic. Because although they might not react to you, when they walk off that aircraft, you might hear another announcement on the PA that something else was found on the aircraft that has to be repaired. I'm just saying. Might not be the wisest thing to mouth off at the mechanic, and the crew for that matter. Don't mouth off at the crew, especially nowadays with this COVID stuff and the mask thing on a plane and all that, people becoming unruly and really just becoming dicks. There's no reason for it. There's some things that the crew can't prevent. There's some things that the airline or the company can't prevent. There's some things that maintenance can't prevent. Just saying. Anyways, 
That was excellent. Those were really, really great questions, and I do appreciate you guys writing in. Always do. I really appreciate the feedback. Uh, remember, our podcast schedule has changed. On the first and last Friday, I'll be releasing a new podcast, and if anything interesting comes up in the industry within that time, I'll post additional special podcasts to discuss. I'm hoping sometime in late July or August, I can start the new aircraft tech talk segments, which I'll explain in another episode. So, uh, again, if you have any questions, thoughts, concerns, or if you want to share your stories and experiences live on the podcast, feel free to reach out to me at apmechanicpodcast, one word, at aol.com. That's apmechanicpodcast at aol.com. Or click the message me tab. Or find me on Twitter at GoodBadUgly underscore A&P and on Facebook, GoodBadUglyAP. So until next time, everyone, stay safe, take care of yourselves. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.